0: Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.
2: Welcome to this Tuesday episode of Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. We're going to jump right into things right now because time is tight. Unfortunately, last night we learned some sad news coming from the wife of General Chuck Yeager. It was announced via Twitter that, quote, it is with profound sorrow, I must tell you, that my life love, General Chuck Yeager, passed just before 9 p.m. Eastern time. An incredible life well lived, America's greatest pilot, and a legacy of strength, adventure, and patriotism will be remembered forever. That was the news uh, that broke last night. After 97 years of life, uh, Chuck Yeager, the first man to break the sound barrier, uh, had passed away. Uh, A hero uh, above and beyond the call of duty, uh, someone who possessed the right stuff. When I heard this news, my thoughts immediately turned to uh, the, the airmen in my life. I thought of my grandfather. I thought of uh, friends of mine. I thought of former coworkers of mine. And I also thought of a man with whom we spoke just yesterday, Utah Congressman Chris Stewart, spent uh, about a decade and a half in the Air Force himself. And he joins us now to look back on what we learned from Chuck Yeager and the legacy he leaves behind and what he means to the congressman. Uh, congressman Stewart, sir, how are you?
3: I'm I'm great. Uh, you you said it well. His wife said it well. I mean, this was an American hero. And is there anyone who's more emblematic of that day? You know, the emergence of the United States as a as a world power, the emergence of aviation and the technology that was just so exciting and so dynamic at that time and and the courage. Uh you know, when when Chuck Went up and broke the sound barrier, uh you know, it was kind of a Uh, scientific wild guess right yeah we think it's we think it's going to be okay and we think the aircraft can hold up but they didn't know that and uh boy what what a courageous maverick and someone that i again every american knows who chuck yeager is it's it's sad that we that we will mourn and and miss him but it's also really cool the legacy that he left behind
2: the the book the movie now the television series (laughs) uh, on the right stuff he was the first to possess the right stuff What, what does that mean
3: Oh, you know, it's a little bit like I was just saying. There's just something, uh, uh, you know, these these mavericks, these courageous uh, men, and now men and women, uh, those who will go do what no one's ever done before, and 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 look good doing it. That's kind of the cool <laughs> thing, and and it really it really captured people. And you know, there, uh, Chuck and I have something in common. You may not know this. We both of us won the what they call the McKay Trophy. It's there in the in the Air and Space Museum here in Washington, D.C., for the, what was the most meritorious flight of the year or aerial achievement of the year. And, uh, I mean, there just aren't many people who have done the things that he did. And uh, when you talk about the right stuff, again, that kind of courage and that swagger and it's everything from having a, a body that you know, can put up to that kind of stress Uh, both physically and mentally, uh, to having the ability to speak to people, to have the ability to actually fly an airplane, to have the ability to understand the engineering and the science behind it. It's it's really, really, truly unique.
2: How how much does he mean to the Air Force today? You spent 14 years in. What was his legacy like? How was he he spoken about uh, in your circles during your time in service?
3: Well, you know, m- most of the people I served as we didn't know him of course. We didn't serve with him. He came before our time, but again, his legacy went beyond generations. And and it, again, you could ask any American who's Chuck Yeager and the vast majority could t- could tell you who he was. And there's just only a few people that you know that that's true of and especially for someone who who's true for be- for that's true for doing something courageous and meritorious versus, you know, what's too often people who, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde, well, we know who they were, but it's not for good reasons. And for General Yeager, it was for astounding reasons. And, you know, that lived on in the, in the Air Force. And, uh, you know, if you, if you ever wanted to have an aspiration, it would be for someone to be anything like General Yeager. And, and, uh, and I'm sure that lives on even still.
2: Tell me a bit more. I know time is tight. You need to get back to the floor. But in part, tell me more about that award that you mentioned a moment ago, that award that the two of you share.
3: Well, and I probably shouldn't say anything. I didn't mean to draw attention away from that. But I mean, they they allow it's given by the International Aeronautic Association and they choose and they don't give it every year, but most years. And they give it for the call again, the most meritorious aerial achievement of the year. Uh, a, a real high number of them actually, interestingly, have gone to people who fly combat rescue helicopters, uh, who risk their lives to go in and save others. But, you know, the Wright brothers, I think, were the first recipients, uh, General Yeager, uh, you know, the, the if you, if you're familiar at all with aviation, uh, m- many people are familiar with a lot of these achievements and, uh, and it's this big four-foot trophy that sits on again on the floor of the Air and Space Museum, and every year they add a, another plaque for the latest achievement.
2: I, I, I presume, uh, and, and, and forgive me, unfamiliar with this award, award until this conversation. I, I presume General Yeager received it for the breaking of the sound barrier. Is that correct? Yeah, that's and not some exactly subsequent right. flight. A, yeah. a, tell me, and I know you're a humble guy, uh, but uh, t- tell me why you received the honor.
3: Uh. We, we have, I have the world's record, actually three world's records, but uh, one of them is for the fastest nonstop flight around the world. And, uh, and so we set that world speed record. it was wasn't We didn't set out to set the world speed record, but we did it on an operational mission. Uh, flew around the world, dropped, dropped bombs on uh, actually several different continents, three different ranges around the world. And is uh, you know testing the capabilities of the B one the aircraft that I flew and kind of testing the capabilities of the of the crew. Uh, but as we were preparing for this mission, uh, you know I, I said I wonder what the world's record is for flying around the world and we looked it up and go well, holy crap we're gonna we're gonna destroy that <laughs> record and and we and we did and it, and it still stands I think it's gonna stand for a long long time it's just truly a unique capability that that the B one that I flew has in in range and endurance and speed.
2: A little bit of the right stuff right there. Congressman Stewart, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, spending these few moments looking back on the life of Chuck Yeager, General Yeager, who uh, we learned yesterday passed away at the age of 97, the first man to break the sound barrier. Congressman, thanks again.
3: Anytime you let me come on and talk about flying rather than politics, I'm there for you all day, man.
2: (laughs) There we go. We'll look for more opportunities. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Fascinating stuff. I want to share with you uh, real briefly uh, some comments that were made by General Yeager. This just two years ago uh, when asked during an interview about the possibility of facing death as a test pilot. Here now are the words uh, from Chuck Yeager, direct.
3: It's your duty to fly the airplane. And that's if, if you get killed in it, you don't know anything about it anyway, so why worry about it? So That's, that's the way you looked at it. And, and actually, duty is paramount. That's, it's, it's that simple when you're a, a military guy. And so you don't say, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's dangerous. Hey, if, you, if it's your duty to do it, that's, that's, that's the way it is.
2: If it's your duty to do it, that's the way it is. We hear talk of duty in all corners of life. But for some reason this morning, as I was listening to this now two year old quote from General Yeager when asked about the possibility of facing death, I did what I could to apply it to my own life and now uh, i've told uh, I've told many uh, that one of my regrets in life Uh, is not to have joined the military for even a time when uh, so many of those who I respect, admire, look to as an example, uh, look to for guidance, have served in the uniform of the United States. Uh, I am also informed and uplifted by this call uh, to duty. Uh, You and I, you know, not members of the military, uh, we still find in our lives examples of Uh, in instances where we need to fulfill our duty, either as parents or uh, co-workers or friends or who knows, whatever the case may be. Uh, But duty and our responsibility to uphold and fulfill our duties is just as important as it was described by uh, Chuck Yeager right here, again from that 2018 interview, talking about the possibility of facing death. If you accept a responsibility, you have a duty to fulfill it. And regardless of the stakes... Regardless of how many people are watching, uh, our obligation is to uphold and execute and maintain our duty, uh, just as was the case with Chuck Yeager. Uh, great story, great life. I look at today as, as an example of one of those days where if our knowledge and understanding and remembrance of the, the life of Chuck Yeager isn't complete, uh, tonight when everything settles down, uh, pull out the cell phone, hop on the computer, do a little Googling, and find uh, the, the gaps. Fill them in. Learn about the life of this man who exemplified the right stuff. Quick break, and when we return, we're going to talk about an author, Raul Dahl, who did much to spark my imagination and curiosity in childhood. Uh, Well, he lived a complicated life, and some of those complications are rearing their head today. We'll get into those details next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. 106 is the KSL News Time. We're into the second hour of the program today. Very much uh, grateful to you for joining me today. Uh, for the next half hour, we're going to continue our conversation uh, about an author, an author who wrote many of the stories which filled my childhood. And an author who has, in fact, uh, been the author of many of the stories I have read to Baby Piper in her first short year of life. I'm talking about Roald Dahl. And I am sure, I am sure that, I'm sure that there are Roald Dahl stories in your childhood. I'm sure that you, at some point, were exposed to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, or the Twits, or Matilda, or Fantastic Mr. Fox, or all of the countless other stories which expanded our imagination, uh, gave us friends if we felt alone, uh, led us to feel empowered if there was great struggle on our horizon. Uh, he was a remarkable man who produced many remarkable works. Before we get into uh, the real issue at hand here, which brings his name back to the forefront, I want to uh, kind of reintroduce you to some of his uh, attitudes regarding writing and the creative process. He passed away, Roald Dahl, that is, in 1990. The year before his passing, there was a documentary made in that he, in 1989, discussed uh, his writing and creative process.
1: There is a world of difference between just being able to write good sentences and being a professional writer who can write a scene so that he comes alive and people love to read it. Uh, People think that it's all inspiration. It's not. It's all perspiration, you know, and judgment. And you're never satisfied with what you do.
2: He continued in that documentary discussing the elements needed to make a great children's book.
1: If you can find a good plot, that's the first step in writing a good story, either for a story, a short story, or for a book. It's the same thing, especially for a children's book. You have to have a strong plot. And then, then you've got to embroider it and enlarge it, and it's got to be something fairly crazy. And, uh, then, the other vital ingredient is is humor laughs you 've simply got to have them a great plot laughs uh, lots of lots of uh, excitement and 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 wondering what 's going to happen you 've got to make them turn over the next page you all beg the teacher or the parent to go on reading you 've got to
2: his description there of a successful storyteller. I will tell you, is exactly what I strive for each day. Uh, When I'm off the air and I have meetings with the consultants and the big bosses here, they tell me that the way to succeed as a talk radio host is to approach every segment as if you have a story to tell. And I, for this year now that you and I have been spending these few hours each afternoon together, I've looked at each time you and I get to chat as a, a story. I have looked for exciting elements. I have looked uh, for humor, as you heard Roald Dahl mention there. I have I have tried to emulate what I saw on the pages of Roald Dahl stories as I was growing up, and as I have now, as an adult, come to read them to my own child. And yet yesterday, I was confronted with something pretty challenging. One of the favorite minds, one of my uh, favorite minds, and the author of the books that fueled my imagination as a child it turns out harbored some seriously egregious anti-Semitism. I've been reading Roald Dahl books since I first learned to read. In fact, I can remember laying in bed as a young boy as my mom sat beside me and read James and the Giant Peach aloud. I have long loved the imaginary worlds created by the mind of Roald Dahl. I've even spent time learning about his life away from writing, which included time as a pilot in the Royal Air Force and dating starlets and brushing elbows with the most influential diplomats in Washington, D.C. and across the globe. And until yesterday, I had no idea that the mind that had brought me so much joy as a child and whose words had inspired my own imagination to think beyond the real and dream of fantastic places and people could also contain some of the most ugly and vile sentiments. In 1983... Dahl said to a publication called The New Statesman that, quote, there is a trait in the Jewish character that does provoke animosity. Maybe it's a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews, I mean. There's always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Those are the words of Roald Dahl. Those are the words of the man who wrote all those marvelous stories. He concluded that comment in 1983 by saying even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick up on them for no reason. That's terrible. And I am sharing the story with you now, you know, not just as a guy who reports the news and shares the headlines, but as someone who is genuinely and, and myself personally shook by this revelation. Because I don't know exactly how to sort out my feelings. Seven years after he made that comment, he said and removed any ambiguity in his position. He said, I'm certainly anti-Israeli and I've become anti-Semitic. It doesn't get any clearer than that. It doesn't get much more reprehensible than that. Which brings me back to my initial dilemma. How should I view the work of this man today? To little baby Piper, in her short year of life thus far, I've read to her Fantastic Mr. Fox, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda. Right now, I'm in the middle of BFG. Now, we didn't read BFG last night. Instead, opting for the Christmas story in that big binder of ours with Christmas stories leading up to Christmas Day. Is reading his stories today somehow a show of support of his attitudes? I've pushed back against this cancel culture, uh, which has crept up in recent years, uh, but through which lens I do look at this situation. The estate of the family of Roald Dahl recently issued an apology of sorts. The Roald Dahl story company and family have posted the following to the Dahl website. I'll read their apology. It goes, The Dahl family and the Roald Dahl story company deeply apologize for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by some of Roald Dahl's statements. Those prejudiced remarks are incomprehensible to us and stand in marked contrast to the man we knew and to the values at the heart of Roald Dahl's stories, which have positively impacted young people for generations. We hope that, just as he did at his best, at his absolute worst, Roald Dahl can help remind us of the lasting impact of words. How does that strike you? Will the books of Roald Dahl remain on your child's bookshelves? 57500 5, 0, 0 is the Utah Community Credit Union text line. And what about the partnership between Netflix and the Doll Story Company? Less than 2 years ago, a 1 billion dollar deal was struck and Netflix has announced a series of animated features stemming from raw doll stories. They've announced a partnership with the director of Jojo Rabbit, in one of those Thor movies. This is a serious venture. Do these revelations change anything for you? 57500. 5, 0, 0. I honestly don't know what to make of it all. I know that nobody is perfect, but I also know that standards are not always universal. There are some acts that are so egregious that there is no return. To help me sort out my thoughts and understand exactly uh, the impact of this revolution, revelation, I've invited next onto the program Rabbi uh, Avrami Zippel. He will be my guest after the break. I'll ask him how he is responding to these revelations about this beloved childhood author. That's next on Life Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to the program. We're gonna wrap up this conversation surrounding uh, some recently revealed comments made by Raul Dahl. You heard me describe them in the segment prior. Uh, if I'm honest, the, the words are pretty ugly and I'd rather not repeat them, but just know uh, that they are some of the more vile comments I have uh, I have heard from someone in the vein of anti-Semitism. Now Roald Dahl, yeah, you recognize that name from your childhood, right? And maybe from your children's bookshelves. That's *James and the Giant Peach*. *Matilda*, *The Twits. All those great stories that you read, all of the all of the great imaginative worlds and characters that were created and offered you, you know, either companionship or distraction uh, when you were young, and maybe uh, maybe some of those memories continue today. Now, I am a huge Roald Dahl fan. The stories, I think I read every single, every single word he wrote when I was young. Some of my earliest memories are of my mom sitting next to my bed reading to me James and the Giant Peach. I was nearly brought to tears just this past year as I sat with my own daughter and read to her portions of James and the Giant Peach just as my mother had done for me. And so you can imagine today as I learn of these uh, of these vile and ugly words uttered by this man of such accomplishment, uh, that I am torn uh, like I haven't been before. I I, I genuinely don't know exactly how uh, to react. I, I am not uh, one who joins in the choir and the chorus of cancel culture, uh, but. But maybe I should look at this through a different lens Uh, to help me understand uh, and to help me, uh, you know, kind of guide my thoughts and also get his reactions. I've uh, invited to the program Rabbi Avrami Zippel. Uh, Rabbi, sir, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm all right. I'm grateful to be speaking with you. I'm sorry it's under these terms, uh, but uh, but let me just ask you uh, straight out. How do you respond to to this revelation and also the apology from the family?
4: I mean, sadly, this is this has become more and more run of the mill in the in the day and age in which we find ourselves. Both the revelations of the comments and you know what his family said, and from what I'm understanding, I think a lot of people, I personally came to know of his comments through the statement of his family. And I think that there's two different issues to unpack here. One is the sentiments expressed in Roald Dahl's comments. And then the second is the statement of its family as it pertains to the comments themselves. You know, I I like how you mentioned that you're not a huge fan of of cannibal culture. I think this is becoming more and more of a reality for people in, in this world that we live in, where, you know, anything which you may have said at some point in your life does have the opportunity to come back and bite you again dozens of years later, that we sometimes have to separate, you know, the, the, the craftsman from their product, whether it's an author or a singer or an actor or a producer or someone in any line of work that does something that enthralls us or entertains us or garners our attention in any way, and we find out that that human being did something less than desirable, said something that was less than desirable, it really behooves us to take a look at the way we look at celebrities, the way we look at role models, the way we look at people who play that sort of role in our lives if our attitude towards them is to look at them as being infallible and perfect and, you know, just a spitting image of what we want to be one day, we oftentimes get dragged back down to earth when we find out that they may have said something like that. And I think it actually gives us a really powerful lesson to to see these, you know, larger-than-life figures for, for what they are. And they are human beings. They are flawed human beings just like the rest of us. Some of them say some despicable things about, you know, specific groups of people and and have really racist sentiments that are at the core of who they are. And I think that, you know, leaves it to every single individual to make a determination. Do they want to throw out all those books from their childhood or can they somehow separate the author from his feelings? And that that becomes a challenge which we run into more and more.
2: Did did you grow up uh, exposed to these stories? Did you read James and the Giant Peach in your youth?
4: I didn't. I, I was actually. I mean, I did read Charlie and Chocolate Factory, um, but I, I was less of a rural doll fan. I did grow up in a, in a pretty Jewish home, most of our books were from Jewish authors. But sure. you know, I'm no. I'm no. I'm no stranger to his works and his accomplishments and the books that he's written, and you know. God knows the tens of millions of of children, and as you mentioned, you know, who grew up to be parents and grandparents of their own, and then passed on those books to the next generations of, of kids he's affected. You know, I, I do get the, the magnitude of this revelation for so many people who are fans of I, this.
2: I read a statistic yesterday as I was kind of brushing up on the details of his, you know, legacy or whatever, and uh, the the business of his uh, organization today, and the the stat I read was that there is a Roald Dahl book sold every thirty seconds across this globe. Uh, really, it, the, the the scope of of his you know I- I impact on the homes and the mines uh, I- is is remarkable. And to, uh, a sale every thirty seconds blew me away. Y- you mentioned some very important things there, uh, and as as I, you know, try to work through my own feelings, would you advise me to look at it more uh, in terms of forgiveness or separation from the stories that he told?
4: So, so I like that you brought up forgiveness, Lee, because I think that forgiveness is really um, at at the core of this discussion. And earlier, you referenced the apology that was made by his family. So I don't, I don't mean to, you know, to, to pick a fight and get all technical. I don't know that I would qualify that as an apology, and I think that. Qualifying it as an apology or not and referencing this entire saga through the lens of forgiveness is really quite important. You know, in our faith, we actually have books of code that discuss the idea of forgiveness. What constitutes an apology and what does one need to do? Someone who has harmed you know, other people, whether it's in a very small sense or in a very large national sense, what do they need to do to gain forgiveness and how does an apology look? And I think the statement that was made by Roald Dahl's family really falls short of the mark of an apology. You know, first of all, it's kind of buried in some obscure page of their website. And furthermore, the tone that I felt of the statement is, you know, well, it's come to light that Roald Ball made these these statements. Well, we hope that, you know, his his teaching about the power of words is both in the positive sense and in the negative sense. And from these anti-Semitic statements that he may have made, we can learn about the power of words. It's not really an apology in my book, and, mm-hmm. and, and pardon me for, for being nitpicky about that. No, no, no. But, you know, An apology – go ahead.
2: No, you're exactly right. And producer Amy and I, we kind of poured through this yesterday and peeled it apart and tried to analyze things. And uh, the conclusion I came to was that, while yes, this comes under the banner of the Dahl family and the Raw Doll story company. It's very clear that there, too, was like, there's a PR person. There might even be a lawyer involved in crafting these words. Uh, the, the first line is that the family and the company deeply, and this is going to quote, deeply apologize for the lasting and understandable hurt. Caused by some of Roald Dahl's statements. I can think back in my own life when I've been like forced to apologize as a child or something and saying something like, not, 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 I'm sorry for what I've done, but I'm sorry that you feel a certain way, which is kind of how that. I saw this opening.
4: I, I totally agree. And, and you know, what, what's more is what, what I found really powerful and really peculiar, frankly, about the situation is that, you know, these aren't like tweets. Or, or, you know, some social media post that was buried somewhere online that was uncovered. I mean, Roald Dahl's on the record saying, I am an anti-Semite. Exactly. You, That's you the find, quote. Yeah. Right. You find very few people who are accused of being anti-Semitic that have come out as much and said, hey there, I am an anti-Semite and I am a racist. And so, you know, for me, when, when, you know, the family and his organization wants to kind of go on this, uh, you know, this expungement tour of, well, we can learn from here the power of words, that's not really an apology. You know, that, that's not... You know, <laughs> Roald Dahl says he's an anti-Semite and then his family's going to try and, you know, pseudo-walk it back a couple dozen years later. To me, that was that was you know, some pretty pretty poor PR movement on their part. And so I think that, to your question that you asked earlier... I think that it's not so much about forgiveness as it is about separation. I don't believe that anybody who buys a rolls Dahl book, like you said, every 30 seconds or reads it to their kids or grandkids is an anti-Semite. And it's promulgating anti-Semitism by buying James and the Giant Peach for their family. I believe that you know this was a man who, who possessed some really, really hurtful and painful sentiments in his own life. And, and that was the way he chose to live, live his life. And, and, and that was him and I, me and whoever buys the book is them. And I think that separation is really, really at the core of this discussion.
2: Uh, Rabbi Zippel, thank you so much for your conversation. Uh, Again, I apologize that we're talking under these circumstances. Let's find uh, an opportunity to have uh, a conversation uh, with more uplifting background. Uh, Very much looking forward to that. But thank you for the wisdom you've presented here. I look forward to it. Uh, You've helped me sort out some of my own thoughts, and uh, I look forward to our conversations in the future. Well,
4: thank you, Lee. It's been an honor.
2: Thank you, Rabbi. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. Let me share with you, though, just some of the some of the texts that have come in. Uh, this one here reads again, answering the question very basically: uh, How do you respond to these revelations? No, it won't change anything for me. Yes, he said some bad things, but have you checked into whether or not he recanted them? Uh, well, uh, it doesn't seem that he did, but the family uh, certainly is in these uh, in this apology, if you will. Uh, next one uh, reads: He is dead. I'm sure many people work. Uh, from this book company. Let them be. Work forward, this book company. Let them be. Let them make a living and move on. Well, uh, we'll give it a try. We'll give it a try. We're going to take a break. When we return, uh, we're going to have a look at something called Safe Harbor Day. That is today, December 8th, and it has to do with the election of the next president of the United States. Details ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back. Thank you for listening today. I'm Lee Lonsberry. This is Live Mike. I told you before we took a break there that we were going to move on to you know, some interesting stuff in terms of election law. and We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, today, December 8th, is something called Safe Harbor Day. It has to do with states uh, and potential challenges to their certification of election results. We'll get into that in just a moment. But I can't help but shake some of the thoughts I've been having regarding this uh, raw Dahl story. Uh, and so many of you have texted in 57500, again, the Utah Community Credit Union text line. The The story very basically is this The man who wrote so many of the beautiful stories that you and I became so familiar with in our childhood and youth, and maybe we have even today uh, read to our own children, it turns out that he was a self declared anti Semite. He said some terrible things. And it wasn't, it wasn't one of those where it was an offhanded joke made in, uh, in, in, in I don't know, secrecy. Uh, no, he very outwardly expressed them uh, in the public. I don't want to read them again. I read them uh, earlier. But just know uh, that they are some of the more ugly things that you could say uh, against that group of people. And again, this is a guy whose life's work in part was dedicated to uh, excitement and uh, wonder wonder and imagination. It is someone who in me instill, instilled uh, a desire to become a storyteller, to get the attention of people and to share with them uh, stories that would excite them and uh, maybe spur their imagination. That's what I try to do here on this radio program each day, is tell stories. Much of it's driven by current events, and uh, we have uh, thought leaders here come on the program. We have newsmakers share. But ultimately, at its base, uh, this is an effort to tell stories each day. And when someone of that caliber, it is revealed had uh, some pretty ugly thoughts and views. It uh, it gives me pause. It it makes me uh, it makes me really kind of step back and reevaluate things. And I'm very grateful to the conversation which we had just before the break with Rabbi Zippel about uh, you know what we how we respond to things like this and how and if we are able to uh, you know kind of segment away uh, the good from the bad. And I put the question to you, 57500, the Utah Community Credit Union text line. And if I'm honest, the texts have been pouring in. And I just want to walk through uh, some of those text messages because they're, they're helpful to me as I continue to try sorting out uh, what it is uh, that I feel and how I react to this. Uh, at home, we have a stack of raw doll books. Many of them I, I've read to my baby daughter, and many of them were destined to be read in the future. I'm leaning towards towards the attitude expressed by Rabbi Zippel in that uh, we are able to separate the good from the bad. Let's go to your comments. Uh, Most recent to come in is we also had to deal with the downfall of Bill Cosby. Well, here is mention of uh, Henry Ford and elements of anti-Semitism in his view. Does that mean we never buy Ford vehicles? Here a response a bit longer reads, Lee, I don't support anti-Semitic thought or behavior either. My question is this. Have you ever been led to feel or to think in an anti-Semitic way because of the works you have read by Raw Dahl? While it is hard to understand how such goodness can come from a mind and a heart that is also harboring hate for others, did he infuse his anti-Semitic frame of mind into what he wrote? It is sad when people we respect so highly show us that they have an ugly side. We all have an ugly side. Well, two points in there that I think are important, and I will be... I'll tell you what, while I pre—I am pretty certain that I, I do intend to, to continue reading uh, these books, the Roald Dahl books, those wonderfully imaginative books which inform much of my childhood, I do intend to keep reading them to my daughter. I will be uh, scrutinizing them ahead of time. I will be looking for uh, anything like is mentioned here in this text message. Did he infuse any of his frame of mind into what he worked, into what he wrote? His anti-Semitic frame of mind. And the second point, which I am grateful to the texter for sharing, is that we all have an ugly side. It certainly exists in varying degrees, but you know, in the understanding that we are not all perfect. Uh, you know, there's something about casting the first stone that comes to mind. Another texter writes, Dahl's anti-Semitic ideas obviously died with him. His family and the company has apologized. Why should they, several years later, be punished by his personal beliefs? That is a great point. Uh, and it also brings up the point of, or the question, rather, of the, uh, the legitimacy and the strength of the apology issued by the family. The family said, uh, quote, that they deeply apologize for the lasting and understandable hurt caused by some of Roald Dahl's statements. Those prejudiced remarks are incomprehensible to us and stand in marked contrast to the man we knew and to the values at the heart of Roald Dahl's stories, which have positively impacted young people for generations. We hope that, now listen to this last line of the apology, we hope that just as he did at his best, at his absolute worst, Roald Dahl can help remind us of the lasting impact of words. Now, I don't exactly know how to unpack that. I don't know what my takeaway should be. I do certainly understand uh, the first half, that when he was at his best, and I uh, would evaluate his best to be in the writing of those beautiful stories, uh, some of the phrases and some of what is described in them, some of the characters introduced, are remarkable. And have left an indelible mark on my mind. And I guess what the second half of that line is trying to communicate is that at his absolute worst, Dahl helps us remind or helps remind us of the lasting impact of words. The unfortunate truth is that while I do intend to continue sharing these stories with my little baby daughter, I will likely be unable to forget what it is that he said each time I pick up one of the books. Hmm. Another uh, texter writes in, uh, Yes, I will still continue to love and encourage Roald Dahl. Honestly, I think the story is wrong. There's enough negative in our world. Why discuss uh, when he brought great joy and imagination uh, to the world? And that will continue. Maybe we have no clue what happened in his childhood. I, you know, I, I'm not... I was with you right up until the end there. Uh, I... I don't think that we should be, like, covering up for anything. I don't think that we should be making excuses. And regardless of what happens in childhood, uh, there's no excuse for that type of anti-Semitism, any type uh, as well. Uh, Anyway, uh, just a few last texts here. I think as long as none of his prejudices and racism are apparent in his books, there's no reason not to keep them and to keep reading them and enjoying them. I I think that ultimately, once I settle down and sort through all my thoughts, that that's ultimately going to be... The, the the conclusion which i reach that as long as there is none of these attitudes present in his books that there is no reason uh, to keep them uh, in, in schools on your own bookshelves and in your hearts and in your memories uh, the stories are beautiful the words of this man are ugly i think we can separate them uh, quick break when we return finally we'll get over to that topic of election calendars uh, <laughs> safe harbor day is something that uh, is on the calendar for this election cycle. It has to do with states and their ability to certify elections and ultimately move past lawsuits. What's that mean nationwide? And specifically, what's that mean here in the state of Utah? Justin Lee, elections director, will be my guest next to explain it all here on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.
0: Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night.
3: Two teenage kids doing what teenage
0: kids do